Professor, thanks so much for taking time to do this. Very much appreciate it. Pleasure. Now, Professor, you were recently cited in an NPR piece that dove deep into the circumstances surrounding the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. What impact do you think both internally and externally do incidents like this uh, that seem to have become more and more glaring over the past several years and decades have on police departments in general? Yeah, I think that I think there are two ways to consider the influence. One is the influence it has in the public, and the other is the influence it ha may have on police agencies. So let, let's start with the public. And not only the public and public, the media, in other words, the people outside policing. Uh, unfortunately, these kind of events get interpreted within the sort of larger discussions that people are having about the police and the concerns they have. So uh, in, in reaction to that incident, which is clearly an incident, just horrible policing, right? I mean, just horrible, horrible. I mean, a person was beat to death on the street. It sounds like Nazi Germany, not like Memphis, Tennessee, and a horrible event. But now the question is, what, what do you draw from that? So uh, the reason I did that NPR interview was because I wanted to place uh, this event within its context. In other words, a lot of the knee-jerk reaction you saw in the public, in the media, et cetera, was, uh, this is hotspots policing. This proves that that policing hotspots is a uh, is fundamentally a problem. And what I what I said was, hotspots policing is about the concentration of resources at places where there's a lot of crime. And this was just bad policing in hotspots. There could be very good policing in hotspots too, and you have to put that in perspective. Not this is what hotspots policing is. On police agencies, I'm not sure. I think what's happened in part is. Uh, a, a much more a recognition, at least, that they that they have to be much more careful. That, that you know, one thing like this can create a gigantic problem, as it should. I mean, police, American police beating people to death in the street is a horrible event, but it, but it also makes them a bit gun shy. I think, in other words, they become extra careful of anything that will cause reaction. So sometimes it can have a positive effect, making them more careful in terms of what they're doing, but it can also have a negative effect of making them uh, uh, too careful. You mentioned that it makes them or may make them too careful. Do you see a hit being taken in police recruitment, police retention? Yeah, there is. I mean, uh, of course, it's been a very confusing decade. You know, there's periods in this decade when uh, the police were highly uh, uh, desired and people wanted more. And then there were some events that led to a very negative view of the police uh, in many parts of American society. And, and that affects young people. You, you know, young people want to go into a profession that's respected and uh, that, that does good. And, and yeah, it's, it's created a, a, a problem for, for departments in hiring. And it goes along with this issue that for, the, for a while there was a a call for uh, defunding police in favor of other agencies that could deal with problems. Uh, but now that seems to have been reversed and departments are understaffed. You know, doing your job, you don't want to do your job. If you're, if people look at your job with disrespect or think it's not, uh, you know, doesn't help society very much. So yeah, this has been a, a major problem. And it's, in my view, a kind of it's it, it's kind of a bad policy situation or, or practical situation for the police because you need consistency over time. You can't go up and down, up and down. 
it would be legitimate to say, well, maybe we want to uh, think about how some of the resources we now give to policing to deal with things like mental health, homelessness and things like that. Maybe we should try to find other agencies that could deal with them. Maybe they'd be more effective. That's a perfectly legitimate argument. But these things have to be developed over time so that you have a, a, a you have an ability of organizations to plan and develop, uh, uh, to create the resources they need. And, and that's not been the case. It's been sort of up and down roller coaster the last few years. There seems to be a debate, right, between whether or not the few bad apples theory, quote unquote, is what's at play here, or is it a larger issue? In other words, uh, the argument is that, well, not all police are bad, but the institution is such that it promotes this kind of conduct. What is your position on that? I think, I think there's a, a little bit of both in a kind of different way than you're thinking. First of all, my experience with the police, and of course that means I'm usually working with police departments that are more innovative, that want to be involved with researchers, but my experience, experience with the police, especially younger police, is, is really positive. People want to help, they want to do a good job. I've seen heroic kinds of, of just positive attitudes and willingness to put themselves out And when I've worked with the police. There, there, are, there are a lot of police uh, who are and I'd say most of them that I've come into contact who, who want to do good, they become police officers in good part to, uh, to play a part in improving society. It's really, it's, it's very positive. I've been, uh, you know, I didn't start out with this assumption. I, I, I was very impressed by it. At the same time, there are structures in policing that can lead to the kinds of problems we've seen. Whether I would say it's not a bad apple issue. Look, there always is going to be you're always going to miss in your selection criterion some people that that are problematic, and some people may become problematic because of personal problems, alcoholism, drugs, and all these sorts of things. Uh, but but there are there are going to be if you if you have hundreds of thousands of people walking around with guns and clubs and the authority to stop people, there are going to probably be some incidents you wouldn't like to occur, and you need to respond to those very 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 quickly when they're isolated. But at the same time, you need to create a system or structure that as much as possible prevents the bad outcomes in police. What I mean, let me give you to give you an example of my latest research. So uh, I've been doing a, a good amount of research. I did a, a three-city randomized trial in which I tried to infuse hotspots policing with procedural justice. What I said to myself was, when, when police go to hotspots, they're interacting with people a lot. They're interacting sometimes with people that aren't so aren't behaving so well. Uh, so there's a lot of potential here for negative things to happen, for something to get out of control. Well, don't we want police in that situation to be better trained? The police who do that, don't we want them to receive some special sort of training that would help them to handle those situations in the best way they could, the best way that, that that's possible? And, and we actually did that in uh, this city randomized trial. We gave a, a team of officers uh, uh, five days of training on procedural justice, and I think it's warranted because they're in these high intensity situations quite often. We had another group dealing with hotspots who just got the regular training, if you like, and we found that after after the in the experiment that the the police who were trained treated people with more respect, 
dignity, listen to them, etc. There were fewer arrests, which is a good thing if crime doesn't go up. And indeed, crime went down about 14% in the treatment group. And citizens viewed the police as less harassing uh, and less violent. And so the, what that says to me is that it's not the system is broken or bad, but we have to be thoughtful about how we uh, uh, train, develop, uh, create systems to to prevent the sort of problems we've seen over the last few years. Now, you mentioned hotspots. Hotspots is a policing policy that is oftentimes associated with what they call aggressive policing, very similar to something called stop and frisk. Is stop and frisk, in your view, as it is currently employed, and I know that it's not currently employed the same way everywhere, a useful legal standard? Look, first of all, hotspot policing is not SQFs, nor is it necessarily aggressive policing. You can have community policing in hotspots, something I've done a little work with. Uh, many times, hotspots involve more aggressive policing because there are a lot of problems there. So you're reacting to things that lead to law enforcement, which is more aggressive than just talking to people. But there, there's no, the overlap that people have put between hotspots policing and stop, question, and frisk. You could have a hotspots policing program which you tell the officers no stop, question, and frisk. Now, the problem is this, that uh, do SQFs have a place? That's sort of what you're asking, right? Right. So so I just did a systematic review uh, of, uh, of stop, question, and frisk. And what we found was it does have a deterrent impact. Uh, across a large number of studies, you do see significant deterrence due to uh, uh, stop, question, frisk. However, stop, question, frisk has some serious potential health outcomes that we don't want to see. Uh, young people that are stopped tend to have more mental health problems, there are physical health problems, their effects and their attitudes towards the police. In other words, there's a lot of what economists might call negative externalities. In other words, that's not why you're doing stop, question, frisk, but it has these outcomes. In my view, given that, we should not use stop, question, and frisk as a strategy at the moment. There are plenty of other strategies that provide uh, uh, what seems to be similar effectiveness. Uh, look, you could just go up to someone and say, I'm officer friendly, and I'm here in the street, and I'm just letting you know we're around. That has great deterrence value, if you ask me, if you know you're going to be around. The, However, uh, 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 let me just clarify two things, because there's been a reaction to my comments about this uh, in policing. Uh, a journal of policy and practice, that I'm not saying that police officers never should use stop, question, and frisk. Stop, if you see a guy walking, if a police officer sees a guy walking down the street and there is a, there is a rifle barrel in his jacket, he, sh he has the power to, according to the law, and he should, according to good policing, stop that person, and then if necessary, frisk them for, to check that there's no rifle, right? Uh, that's different than a broad program of stop, question, and frisk. So first of all, SQF is a tool that is legitimate, according to the courts, in certain situations, as a safety issue, if you like, for the most part. The second, uh, the second issue is I'm not saying we should never, it's not that we should refrain from testing and examining the impacts of stop, question, and frisk. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you, you believe that you could create a stop, question, frisk program with procedural justice so that you, you'd sort of tone it down and carry out in ways where the people who are stopped would feel better about that experience and treated more respectfully, et cetera. And then you wanted to see whether that worked as a deterrent strategy better than more traditional strategies. Uh, 
Well, that would make a perfectly reasonable uh, subject for a uh, for a randomized trial, for an experiment, for an evaluation. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is right now, the evidence is not there for widespread use of SQFs as a proactive policing strategy. You mentioned a little while ago, mental health as it relates to the internal processes in police departments. How do jurisdictions around the country, police departments, agencies, handle uh, those kinds of issues within police departments? Well, look, there's an historical element to this. The police are much more, um, the, the, the police are much more, take more responsibility for mental health problems today than perhaps they did a generation or two ago. And part of the reason for that is the police got stuck with these problems when uh, mental health shelters were closed down, when other city agencies couldn't cope with problems of homelessness and mental health. Uh, the police naturally become the sort of, you know, the first responders. Um, that's a tough issue because uh, I think we'd all agree that many times the police are not the best responders, for example, uh, for people with mental health problems. So there have been a variety of programs developed that involve policing and uh, mental health workers. The uh, I, I think that uh, uh, this is an area that demands special training, but I think it's also an area that demands that city governments begin to think about other agents besides the police and how they can either aid the police or create independent uh, responses uh, that would be effective. The police, the problem is the police tend to be pretty good at doing things actually. Well, with all the complaints about the police, my experience uh, in conversations with uh, uh, community workers and, and city government is that they look at the police as they don't always do it well or right, or they don't always do it right, but they look at them as pretty effective. You can call them and they come do something. Uh, but we need to, we need to it, get better for the police and better for the public if we spend some funds to try to create other avenues for dealing with many of these types of problems. And there lies, of course, the big problem. It's very easy to talk about doing things, but city government often does not want to expend the resources that it would take to develop alternative responses. Now, you've written recently about the institution of body cameras. How important are they? Are they useful in ensuring public safety, reaffirming public trust? Yeah, I think that, that body cameras is a, a difficult area because the research, research is not clear yet. Um, there's some good evidence from experiments that when you have body cameras, uh, it, it reduces the amount of abusive behavior by the police, makes them more aware of how they should behave. But uh, I don't think this area is, uh, I, th I think there's more expectations of body cameras than the evidence so far has produced. We need, uh, we need more evidence to see how and in what circumstances. For example, one of the problems in many jurisdictions with body cameras is the police can turn them on and off anytime, right? So, you know, that, that inhibits, if you ask me, the deterrent power of body cameras. In Memphis, by the way, I believe they kept their body cameras on. I'm not sure about that, but, you know, cops forget, they don't turn them off. Um, yeah, uh, th this is a more general issue. Sometimes uh, these processes, in order to work, uh, need to be done in ways that unions, for example, object to. Unions have been, uh, in some ways, have done good, but in some ways have 
have worked against uh, improving policing. Uh, another example of this is uh, education requirements. I think there's broad consensus that education requirements are good for police. In other words, uh, that a, a two-year or four-year college can improve the candidates we get in police agencies, can improve their, their effectiveness and behavior in the long run. And uh, uh, even though there's been a consensus, and this has been going since the 1960s, most police departments still do not have education requirements because unions uh, push back very hard against them. It seems, this seems, in addition to all the other issues that you've discussed so far, as a measure that is designed to bridge a gap, right, between the police and the community, to establish trust. How important is that? Look, I think that that, that most police agencies, or many, have become, come to realize that the way in which the community views you and the way in which the people you interact with you uh, is one of the important outcomes of police. And let me be clear about this. Some people have come to argue that, that we shouldn't worry about crime control. We should only worry about teaching police to behave in more respectful ways, et cetera. I don't see it that way. I think, I think if, if, if we don't need people to control crime and some other activities the police do, then I don't want to have them. <laughs> you know, they're expensive. They can do bad things, too. We, we have the police because we're... We want them to solve certain types of problems that other agencies can't solve, in particular crime problems. We empower them with guns and clubs and radios and a whole host of other equipment because we want them to do it effectively. We believe it's necessary, right? Uh, but having said that, that we want them to control crime, we want them now to do it in a way that is consistent with democratic police. Right. I mean, there lies, I think, and, and that's important what I've just said, because some people say, let's put the respect. I mean, we don't hire police so they'll be respectful. Well, that's not the purpose. The purpose is crime control. And then when they carry out and some other activities like uh, disaster control, and things of this sort. But when they carry out those activities, we want them to do it in a way that is consistent with democratic policing. And to be frank, I think procedural justice, which is uh, uh, listening to what people have to say and giving them voice, showing trustworthy motives, showing neutrality, and uh, treating citizens with respect is a core pillar of what policing should all should be about. I want to talk to you a bit about police accountability. Are we seeing more criminal prosecutions over the past several years, or are the internal processes in police departments uh, really the measuring sticks for misconduct, generally speaking? Yeah, I'm really not an expert on that, so, so I don't have a, a lot to say. I think this is an area that's very hard because uh, if you give the police too much control, that tends to lead to a situation where there's not enough regulation or supervision. Uh, if, if you don't involve the police, if you take them completely out of the equation, uh, that can sometimes be viewed with police as kind of like, you know, not recognizing the reality of the world in which we're in. Uh, yeah, I'm not, this is not an area that I, that I, that I feel confident in, in saying very much. I say like anything else, you have to strike a balance between controlling the police and uh, having the police be able to carry out their tasks in effective and efficient ways. You know, the media has changed so much over the past several years. Uh, with the expansion of social media, obviously the internet blowing up. 
What is the role of the media in the establishment of public perception as it relates to policing? Yeah, I don't know if there's a role of the media. I mean, uh, uh, there are two separate questions here, really, I think. One relates to what is the role of the media, and the second, what about what's happened in media over the last decade or so? Uh, I think most people, uh, most people that I've talked to would agree that this diffusion of media and news and stuff has not been helpful because it means that everyone's getting their news from someplace else, and many of these places they're getting news from are not very trustworthy sources. And that can create major problems for the police. In other words, there could be a, a shooting which involved the police responding to a gunshot from someone with a gun. But in, in certain media platforms, that becomes the police purposely came down and shot a person of a certain ethnicity or race or religion or sexual persuasion, whatever whatever the issue is. And, and that, that can create all sorts of problems because there's a difference between a police officer responds to a, a person with a gun, whatever the reason for that, uh, and a police officer pulls out his gun and shoots someone without a gun, right? So I think this, this expansion of media has created a situation where uh, it, it can inflame the situation for police. And it's one of the reasons why police need to be media savvy. They need to know what's going on. They need to have a sense of what the media is saying so they can respond to all the different media. The, the other question is about what is the role of the media uh, in a sense? Yeah, I think the role of media in democracies is in general to, um, to keep an eye on things, right? To make sure things don't get hidden, right? What is it, the Washington Post? Don't they have something like uh, in darkness, uh, evil, develops or something I don't remember but but yeah it's something to that you know in a, in a the, the the advantage of an aggressive free media system is that that uh, we know about things that people may not want us to know about right and, and that's generally a good thing it's not easy all the time you know we as a society in our criminal justice system claims to rehabilitate right the idea of law enforcement and punishment in general is to rehabilitate, reduce recidivism. Is there a connection to be drawn between the way police do their job and our system's ability to rehabilitate offenders? Look, I, I think you have to think of this equation a bit differently. My work has been very focused on the idea of deterrence. I'm not trying to arrest more people I'm not trying to capture more people, not me, but the police I work with. What we're trying to do is prevent future events. And, and I think that is, the, is, is an important way for the police to work. Reacting to past events is not going to help you in the future very much. It might a bit, actually. I take it back. There can be deterrence from capturing people and these types of things, arresting people. But, but the real goal here is to prevent crime. That's my view. If you prevent, every time you pick someone up and arrest them, a person goes to the criminal justice system, that's expensive, and it can have negative impacts on that person, make them worse, right? So there's evidence of that, especially with young people. So in that situation, I'm trying to prevent crime. If I can prevent crime, I have a cost savings in terms of the criminal justice system, and I have a savings in terms of human misery from people going through the system. Another question is, and this is not for police for the most part, can we re rehabilitate people? You know, I think there's growing evidence that rehabilitation programs, especially in prisons, can have a positive impact. 
But the, the bottom line is, we, we, it's better if we can, it's, it's certainly better if we can keep the people out of the prisons. You know, it's certainly better if we can prevent crime and reduce the number of people that come into contact with the criminal justice system. How harmful are things like defund the police, I put that in quotes, to improving the way police do their job? Yeah, the defund the police movement, like many sort of political movements, tends to become a lot of rhetoric and loses some rationality along the way, I would say. But the look, the defund the police movement was not very smart in my view. I think that um, I think that uh, before you defund the police, you better make sure that you have other avenues for carrying out the tasks the police carry out. I guess the the logic of defund the police is the police are doing more harm than good. Uh, I I don't think there's evidence of that. See, my reaction to my reaction wouldn't have been defund the police. My reaction would be, what is the problem? How can we make the police do that better? Uh, some of these people that support this have believe it's inevitable. It's bad, you know, inevitable. The police are going to be terrible, right? I I don't think that's true. I think we can uh, we can uh, work with the police to uh, reduce as much as possible the negative outcomes. Now there is a what I would view as a positive element to defund the police movement. Uh, the police should not handle every job. The police have gotten lots of jobs that they shouldn't have, in my view. Now, much of policing, I think uh, there's a study by Cynthia Lum and Chris Coper and others, much much of policing, policing, much of what the police do, other people at the moment at least can't do, but there are some things that others can do. And I think so defund the police raised the issue of whether there are other agencies or other groups that we could empower to do some of the things that the police would do. And to be frank, I think that would help the police greatly. So the, the positive side of the defund the police movement is when people don't use the term defund the police and they ask, are there jobs that the police shouldn't be doing or that others could do more efficiently or more effectively or more cheaply? Uh, and should we think about how to uh, um, you know, divide the, the resources to be most effective? I think most police agencies that have tried to defund the police are now, or most cities that have taken this are in trouble. <laughs> like, they're now trying to fund the police. Uh, yeah, that's part of that is they didn't do it very thoughtfully. If they had said over the next 10 years, let's see whether we can develop, uh, for example, social worker groups or, or other mental health professionals that would help us deal with mental health, uh, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, these sorts of problems. And how could they take uh, away from some of the responsibilities of the police? If someone had thought about that, was willing to put money in and did it over 10 years, that would be great for policing and great for society. But that's not how this happened. By the way, I'll just give you an interesting statistic. And I don't think it's isolated. I did a study in Phoenix recently in which we asked people who live on hotspots of crime whether they want more police, the same amount of police or less police. And they almost everybody wants more police, either the same or more. People don't want to defund the police. And this is not only my study. There are, there are, there are lots of evidence from polls out there that the defund the police movement is, uh, uh, you know, is not uh, general in society. Now, I would say this: that there's a there's there's a real downside to the defund the police movement in this way. In my Phoenix study, it's clear that people who live on streets that have a lot of crime problems they want more police. They need the police. And when people who come from safe areas that don't have crime problems 
You know, they think, even if they think they live in a crime-ridden community, most streets in a crime-ridden community don't have a lot of crime. The people who live in those streets need the police. When people defund the police, they're actually creating a safety issue for those people who need the police. Now, having said people need the police, they want the police, they want the police to treat them with dignity and respect. And that is not too much to ask for, in my view. Professor, what issue do you see as most prevalent in the next, let's say, five to 10 years that will arise in policing around the country? Yeah, I think predicting the future is a very hard thing to do. You're like, who would have predicted COVID? Who would have predicted 9-11? I think that I think it's very hard to do, but I, but I think that the if you ask me what would be the right thing for people to be concerned about, I, th I think the right thing is for people to to think about how they can advance police reform, in other words, uh, improvement of police treatment of people, questions of this at the first at the same time that they advance police effectiveness. It seems to me those two things can go together, and police agencies ought to be. You know, they ought to be doing that. That's what they ought to be thinking about. We've had a tendency in policing to either go in the crime control direction or go in the reform the police direction. And, and I think that the, that kind of seeing them as different trends is bad for policing and bad for society. And what I would like to see in the next decade is for people to combine those in intelligent ways to develop the best policing we can get. Just as a comment, we, policing costs a fortune. Uh, it's it's equi not equivalent to, but I think similar to the cost, maybe probably not much different than the cost of public health. And, and But in public health, there's $40 billion spent a year in on research. And in policing in the U.S., there may be $30 or $50 million spent. We need to pay a lot more attention to how we police, what, what the effects of policing are, how we can be more effective and efficient, how police service can be carried out better. All these questions are key. They won't be answered until the federal government starts investing in policing in the way that it's investing in public health. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated. A pleasure, Dimitri.